You're listening to GNU World Order, episode 50 of season 12 for December 9, 2018. Hi everyone, this is Klaatu. I'm the host. We've got a lot to talk about today, and I'm going to try to keep it focused so that I don't ramble on for three hours. So first of all, catch up on a listener email again from Vulcan Rider, who is responding to a question that I posed to Deep Geek about ZFS in 1248. So here's his answer. And I think my question was, is it worth doing ZFS on a single drive? And he says, I have it in a number of configurations. As I mentioned in my last missive, I run it in a RAID Z2 on my FreeNAS, and I have two mirrored pairs of drives, one pair of SSDs, one pair of spinning rust. Not, not heard that term before, spinning rust. But on my laptop, I have a single drive and have never had a problem, aside from the protections of ZFS not giving you bad data and making sure it can prove the data is good. You can also tell ZFS to save multiple copies of the data using ZFS set copies equals X where X is the number of copies you want to keep it only works for data written after the ZFS set change other thing is that it affects performance and there's a link which I will ideally remember to put into the show notes We'll see what happens there. Written by Jim Salter, author of Sanoid, a ZFS snapshot and replication manager. But that's great information. Thanks a lot, Vulcan Writer, because I, I really was not sure if ZFS could scale down, which is not usually, I don't think that's usually a concern, but I, I feel for something big and designed for like big data centers and stuff, so I, I don't know, maybe it expects to have one more drive. So that was a good question on my part and a great answer on Vulcan Writer's part. So thank you. I also realized this morning as I was being pinged by various things on the internet, it's probably worth sort of, I don't know, acknowledging when people uh, contact me through Mastodon. And I, I haven't really done this sort of thing all that much where I get messages from people in, you know, lots of different places. It's usually either an email or IRC, but there are more places out there online these days to receive feedback. So a guy named By Their Deeds says, um, I, uh, what does he say? Well, he says some things about, um, some, some conversation that we were having. I don't actually remember what it was about, but the interesting thing is that he says uh, that there are things, oh, this is, okay, so this is actually the second message that he sent me. Okay, that, that makes sense. So he was saying, are you on Gab or any of the blockchain social medias like BitChoot and Minds? And now I had not heard of any of those things, and I didn't know there was blockchain social media. I don't think I did anyway. And I said I'm not, and partly uh, part part of the reason for that is because I really don't tend to actually love social media. Um, I'm still not even sold on the name social media, to be honest. But that kind of public chat room sort of thing, I, I don't absolutely love. And it, it's weird. You might think, well, you like IRC, so why wouldn't you like a public chat room kind of setup. And I'm saying public chat room when I guess originally it was called microblogging. And I just don't like the, the lack of focus. Now, granted, in IRC, the focus isn't really necessarily there either. But in many IRC channels, there's a title, there's a there's a channel name. And so the focus tends to be relatively close to that topic. Now, if you have people who hang out there a lot, then yeah, they, they get off topic. Sometimes channels split and say, okay, well, this is the official channel of this project, and then here's the off-topic channel. So you hang out here a lot, but take your social um, conversations over to the off-topic channel. And, and, but there's no, there's just, in all the other social media things that I've ever encountered, it's just sort of 
it's just sort of madness. It's complete chaos, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but they don't tend to provide a way to filter it then. So you might think to yourself, well, I, I'm really only interested in, in this th th train of, of thought or, or this stuff, this these kinds of threads, but there's not really a way to focus in on that. And I feel like Mastodon is, is kind of went, sort of got close to that in a way because they had instances so different people could run an instance of mastodon and maybe you would call your instance linux dot um uh, tech and, and then people could sign up for your thing and the topic would generally presumably be linux but i don't know if that i, I don't know if that was the original expectation of mastodon or if that was something that people brought to it you know once they kind of got a feel for oh my gosh there are different instances we could we could focus instances on certain things or we could we could create instances based on kind of general preferences in life you know whatever that might be um like a gaming instance so, something for gamers uh a a tech one, uh, you know, whatever. I don't know how much of that was supposed to be baked into Mastodon originally, or if that was something that people brought to it later. But in, in practice, I find that while you do tend to get a certain... Um, you do get kind of an over... You get kind of a, a mood or a, a, a feeling... Atmosphere is the word I was looking for. An atmosphere, depending on what instance you are sort of tuned into it's still pretty it's still pretty chaotic and pretty random so i don't know it's but i think mastodon's the one that that's that's probably pretty close but the blockchain social media is intriguing to me i would certainly um yeah i'd i'd be curious about it why not so there are apparently a couple of different ones so there's one called minds there's one called bit i'm saying mind minds plural m i n d s Minds, BitChoot, and apparently Gab, I'm not sure. Uh, and then I had uh, heard about one from DeepGeek, and it was called Scuttlebutt, uh, as in the... I don't know what Scuttlebutt actually means. It's just like... Um, it's a pirate term, as far as I know. I don't know if that's really what it means. But anyway, so that's that's from By Their Deeds, and uh, thanks for the tips, and I'm hoping to try some of those at some point. But I know that Scuttlebutt, for instance... Um, I kind of I downloaded their little client and I kind of got started and then it seemed that there was no activity at all and then I wasn't really sure if I was supposed to subscribe to this this main sort of tracker and then I I found Lost in Bronx so I added him and then I think he said he messaged me but the client wasn't open so it didn't receive it so I don't know I'm not, I'm not, we'll have to see how any of this works but yeah it's 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 interesting. I'll probably try it. Another one um, is from a guy named Greg, who says, "What does he say, Greg?" Greg said, um, "Thanks, Klaatu, for a great GNU World Order episode covering workflows for artists in the free software world." Uh, that, so that was very nice. Now, Greg, the the neat thing about Greg is, and um, this is something I just I kind of just found him the other day because he had he'd posted some links to some some music that he did or something and it said it was all public domain and I thought well it's not really public domain it looks like it's creative commons to me so I kind of messaged him back and forth about that and then I uh, or, or during that process I started downloading some of his stuff and it's it's um I guess what you would call noise music uh, I don't love that term but that's sort of what people refer to it as so if you've if you are a fan of noise music, which I'm a, I'm a, a very, um, I, I would say I listen to a lot of noise, 
So, um, yeah, then I, I definitely recommend his loud cycle, as he calls it, fawn protection. There are either six or seven entries into that. The seventh, he says, is lost, so it's maybe not worth mentioning. But uh, it's, a, it's a bunch of hours of, of sounds, and uh, it's, it's loud. It's, it's kind of, it's not calm or anything like that, but it, it's really, really amazing. I was, I was just really enjoying it and i haven't i haven't heard it all but um it, it is one of those it, it's a good noise album and and there are well i'm not going to go on a tangent about noise suffice it to say that i'm a big fan of noise albums i'm i i i, I used to consume quite a lot of noise albums really uh and then the internet happened and there were and noise was really hard to get back back like in the early 2000s or it, it felt like it was because a lot of well it was a it was a, fun, a function of exactly what i was talking about last week where you make this noise album and then you think oh i want to distribute it to people and then you realize how much it costs to go to your local computer store and get a big spindle of cdrs and some kind of sleeve for those cdrs so you you price out like the cheapest possible paper cd uh sleeves for cdrs and then you get it home and you realize oh my gosh now i have to I have to burn a hundred CDs or fifty CDs or five hundred CDs, and back in those days, you didn't have like ten-speed CD writers. These were like one and two-speed CD writers, and it 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 was a big it was a problem. It was something that you really really had to work on, and of course, you also couldn't you couldn't post the the album online because it, the file sizes were just too large so i mean you could but you just couldn't reasonably expect people to download it plus if you were going to go and distribute your cd by hand outside of a of a local uh club after a, a show or something then you, you it, it's basically useless to hand people a flyer with a link on it that you, you had to you had to give them a CD. So yeah, it was um, it was and that was even you know further if you wanted the CD to be sort of like blank or something that was a lot that was pretty tough too. I mean the um, the cover of the CD the top of the CD because usually back well I'm sure it is still now I just haven't seen a CDR lately but they've you know they'd all have like the brand name and some kind of funky thing about how fast the CD was and you know just stupid stuff that didn't look very sort of I don't know, artistic. So what I used to do was get these um, printable CDRs with a white, uh, sort of a white layer of, of, well, printable plastic, I guess, on the very top. And then I would go with like a Sharpie or some such, it wasn't actually a Sharpie, it was some kind of, um, it was a very thick ink that didn't dry flat, it was slightly raised, it was kind of interesting. And I would just write the name of the album and some indication of of the artist or whatever, and, and I would write that on the top of the CD, and that was the CD art. So it was pretty lo-fi and um, pretty rough, but I guess it was better than, you know, what people had to do back in the 80s and 90s with cassette tapes. And it, it was difficult, it, it did not scale very well. It, it took a lot of money after a while and took a heck of a lot of time. Uh, you, you would just sit at home burning CDs like all day long and you'd think, oh, I can, if I start like really early, I'll be able to get through hmm, maybe 10 CDs, you know, and then, 
and then you realize that means that you're going to have to do this literally for 50 days. And then you have 500 CDs to get rid of, and that's a whole other story. So anyway, noise was difficult to get at one point. The internet happened, it got a lot easier to get, and uh, believe it or not, there's good noise and there's bad noise. You, you, you just got to kind of... I mean, and it's subjective. That's the wonderful thing about it. Like, to some people, you know, noise that that is basically one tone on a CD is, like, brilliant, and to other people it's just annoying. So it's... Yeah, but but there is good and bad noise, and if you're not into it, you should uh, check it out, because it's pretty amazing. And you might want to check out Greg's stuff at fawn.garden slash history. That's F-A-W-N dot garden slash history with a capital H. And again, I'm recommending the loud cycle, but certainly you can try whatever you want. So there you go. That's... um. That's that's people who have contacted me. So now uh, let's play a segue bit, and we'll talk about the next topic. Oh wait, before we do that, um, I should mention that I've got a noise album that you could also hear uh, if you wanted to hear my interpretation of noise. Although mine's really, you could uh, you could argue it's music concrete or or a sound collage. Kind of, it's up in the air. But it's called God Stream, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Now let's play the segue music and go to the next topic, which is workflows revisited. Okay, so partly because Greg mentioned that I talked about workflows, I want to talk more about workflows, because I feel like the example that I gave in the previous episode was obviously very specific to what I was doing, and it was just kind of, hey, look, here's how I did this thing with all these different tools. But I want to talk about how someone might come to Linux from kind of you know a new user coming to Linux sit down with all of these choices right there are choices for everything and that's great blah 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 but it's overwhelming fact of the matter it's just it's overwhelming that many that much choice it gets overwhelming for new users we've all experienced it so we may as well just say it it's overwhelming so or it can be overwhelming now that's not a big deal. So is you know what else is overwhelming? Opening up your Steam game client and trying to decide what game you're going to play when you have 200 games in your library. Or opening up an an app store type application, F-Droid or Google Play or whatever, on your mobile device and trying to find uh, that one paint program that you need so you can sketch out an idea or, or whatever. That it, It's overwhelming. Software is overwhelming. There are lots of things out there and if you don't know what's good, then you don't know what to, to even try first. And, and furthermore, if you don't know what's good in your eyes, then you don't know what to try. And, and there's a difference, right? There, there's there's the, the one with all the five stars that you think, oh yeah, this is the one to try first. And then if you don't like it, okay, well, I'll go down to that one with four stars. Oh, I like this one. Okay, well, we're good. But it, it it's overwhelming. So for artists, and, and by artist, I mean anyone who produces anything of which they are proud at some point the the key is to or the 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 danger the frustration be, happens when they sit down one day and think okay i'm going to i'm going to make some music now and they sit down they turn on they turn on their linux computer and then they realize they haven't really used this music application a whole lot yet they don't know how it works where did all their synths go they used to have a bunch of synths on the proprietary one it was in a menu called synths but there's no menu called synths here and and so on you know so so there's there's this big it, there's this mood killer and it it is unfamiliarity so a workflow part of the part of a workflow that 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 no one can solve but the individual at the end of the day 
uh, is part of that is familiarity. You have to be familiar with the tools that you're going to use. It doesn't happen overnight, and so if you're switching to Linux from something else, then you have to you have to schedule time for noodling around. That's what audio people call it. I don't know what other people call it, but we call it noodling around. You have to spend time to just open up an application and sort of just poke around at things. Try different effects, try different menu items, open up this synth, open up that synth, see what they sound like, see what they sound like when piped through a specific effect, figure out how to load them in the first place. It's, it's all those basic things that people did when they were, you know, in uh, high school, learning all this stuff on their own, but with proprietary applications. And so now that they're not in high school, and they're big and professional and important, they realize that all that stuff that they taught themselves, they, they, they feel like it's pretty useless now. now. Now, point of fact, it's not useless. There's a lot of knowledge there. There's a lot of abstracted knowledge that most people have about computing and the way things work. We just don't give ourselves credit for it. And I think that's a real, real shame. I think a lot more people ought to give themselves a lot more credit for the abstract knowledge that they have, which we usually don't do because I think, I feel like the the world implies that the only important knowledge you can gain when learning anything about a computer is the stuff with a very important brand attached. Like if there's no logo and brand before the title of the thing of the application that you are mentioning then then it's useless nobody cares so that's a pity because that for me at least is the most useless kind of information it is very specific it is bound it is dependent upon financial uh, stuff and it assumes that that everyone needs that information it assumes that that your knowledge is so important that anyone would be crazy for not wanting your expertise uh, in that area. And it, it really doesn't account for the fact that maybe I don't, I didn't base my business model on someone's brand application, that I based it on something else. And that's where the abstract knowledge really comes in handy, right? That's the stuff that we actually care about. The stuff where I can bring someone in and say, okay, I need this piece edited, and I need it edited by the end of the week. Can they figure out how to use the editing program that I sit them down in front of because of their general knowledge of how these things work? Ideally, someone should be able to, to basically teach themselves the, 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 you know, what, 20 to 25 percent of an application that we all actually use. I mean, we, different 25 percent per, per hundred people, you know, we all use sort of different areas of an application, but generally we don't use a whole application. We use that part of the application that we actually, that, 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 that fits our use case. So you ought to be able to teach yourself that 25% of the application pretty much in a day, and then you've got four days to edit or four days to do whatever. So that abstract knowledge is, is vital, but it, it's devalued, I think, in, in a lot of the sort of the working world kind of area. We don't, we don't really praise that. We always attach, we always qualify things with a brand name. So when, if you're coming to Linux and you're thinking, okay, now I need to figure out how, to, how something gets done. I need to figure this out. Then it's all about learning the tool set, but it's also about learning how the tools fit together, which is what I was saying last time and trying to demonstrate in, in a way in my in my example of how I used all these different tools for uh, for tabletop game publishing. 
So I'll try to break this down in something a little bit um, sort of scriptable and, and reusable. And I think that the the zeroth point is to do your research. So research on what is available. And, and that's kind of the equivalent, I guess, of opening up your app store, right? Like, you know that you need to get some task done. And so you do your research in what applications accomplish task on Linux. Maybe not that exact search term, but you know what, you know, alternatives to, you know, whatever application you actually know how to do that thing on, that sort of search. It's, it's, it's the research phase, you gotta do it, and certainly in open source it's gonna come up with at least 20 solutions for any given task. I mean, anything you do, there are gonna be 20 solutions, and it is going to be, it's going to be a, a horribly ordered list. People who don't understand the process will have built these lists. They will judge the priority off of attractiveness of the website, and and they won't know what they're talking about, unfortunately. And that's just the internet for you, really. But you'll you'll find lots and lots of results. And then after you know, and you write them all down. You write them down, and you put the URL under the title of the thing. And, and now you've done your research. It's not that hard, but it's something that you have to do. And it's going to be frustrating. And two weeks from now, you're going to find one more that slipped through, and you're going to be really angry about it. And you're going to say, why didn't I find that the first time I searched? Believe me, it happens all the time. So once you've done your research, then you need to evaluate. This is just the initial evaluation, and it's the, the obvious stuff. Does the application start? Can you create something super basic in it? Just Just... See, basically just have the thing open, see how many times it crashes. It's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the easiest kind of stress test. It's just to see if the thing is stable enough to work in. And if it's crashing or hanging or loading for, you know, 30% of the time that you spend in it, rather than actually doing the work that you would imagine you're going to be doing in it, then, then maybe don't give it high marks. So the evaluation... Um, is is the noodling around really, but it's it's the super early noodling around because the next thing that you want to do is mentally kind of compare what you've just experienced to the thing that you know. So if you have been using proprietary application foo and you have just tried open source application bar, take those two in your in your mind and just kind of think about how they have how they've been different. You'll notice the differences. So. Think about those, kind of really ponder them and hold them in your thoughts. Not judgmentally, just analytically. What is the, what, what, how do they differ and how might that affect what you intend to do with the open source application? Now, once you've compared, now the important thing is to sort of um, establish your minimum requirements. Now, minimum requirements is a horrible term. Nobody likes minimum requirements. Everyone wants lots of things. We want we want the best possible thing. We want all the requirements. That's that's the sign of a good product, right? We don't want to scale back to minimum requirements. That sounds like like it's not good enough. Like, well, we're just scraping by here. But actually minimum requirements are super important because they help you focus. Here's a little example, okay? So, let's say that I'm an author and I know that I want to produce a PDF at the end of my journey. So someone mentions that they write all the time in Emacs, and they've even like published a book in Emacs, and they've, they, they use Emacs all the time. It's great. So I take a look at Emacs, and I think, 
this is a horrible application. This can't produce a PDF. It doesn't show me what, you know, it's not a what you see is what you get kind of editor. There's no way I could ever use this. I would throw it out. Now, minimum requirements will tell me what do I actually need from from the thing that I'm typing into. Well, minimum requirement would be does it generate text and retain formatting? Well, yes, it does. It does that very well. So actually now suddenly Emacs is looking like it could be a contender as long as I know enough to follow that up with a good converter like, let's say, Pandoc or if I'm savvy with docbook xslt proc now those those can produce well actually let's go with xslt proc xslt proc produces does does not produce a pdf either that's not so great um so then i might realize that xslt proc produces a .fo file and fop converts fo to pdf quite nicely so maybe that's the way i would want to go or i could find out that there's another application called xml2 and that kind of bundles the functionality of xslt proc and uh, essentially fop although it doesn't use fop uh, all in one and does produce a pdf i think uh, i could be making this up but it, it does either pdf or ebook with one command is pretty nice um and so maybe I would use that as my intermediate step. Or maybe I would use Pandoc, because I know that does translate stuff to LaTeX and does uh, do a PDF. So lots of possibilities all of a sudden, which is quite quite different from this application will never work for me because it won't, it won't export to PDF. Or the one hack I found how to print to PDF, or yeah, to print to PDF, where you can go to print and instead of printing to an actual... Hard, uh, printer device you can print to a file and you can generate this PDF file but then you'd look at it and you'd think well this is, looks this looks horrible it's all mono type and you know no styling whatsoever so yeah that it's that's how things can be is that you look at something and you think well this doesn't get me to A to Z but if you look at it and say well you know what though it does get me to A if, from A to, to G and I know that there's another application that'll ingest G and get me all the way to Z. And so your solution becomes a little bit more diverse, but possibly even more powerful, depending on what you're looking to do. And, and certainly, uh, staying with this example, because it's actually working out really quite nicely for me, um, you also have a lot more options now, and and you kind of, there it becomes a lot more flexible. So with your proprietary application, Foo, you could get from A to Z, and the only path that you had to get from A to Z was was this proprietary application. That's one path, that's one choice, right? But with Emacs, you realize that you've got you, you can go from from Emacs to XML2, and then to either PDF or eBook, um, which I didn't have on my Foo um, application, and then. Uh, I could also go to XSLT proc, and then from XSLT proc I could generate the ebook or the fo, and then from fo I could go to fop to PDF, which is um, I think a even more you know highly customizable way of, of going um, than the next one, which is Pandoc, which can go from Pandoc or, or rather from uh, Emacs to Pandoc and then to straight to PDF or to ebook. But the styling's a little bit different, and I'm not really used to that as much. But who cares? Because maybe sometimes I do feel like using Pandoc, because sometimes I'm not going to be writing in XML at all. So I could just speed things up by writing in Common Mark, which uh, is the the better version of Markdown, um, and then going from 
you know, from common mark to pandoc straight to whatever, and the styling's pretty okay on that, so we'll just do that. You know, so there's lots of flexibility all of a sudden. There's all these different paths to the same ends. They're all scriptable, as just sort of by the way. And and so now your tool set is much, much stronger, much, much cheaper as well. But anyway, um, it's, it's, it's a lot better. You've got a lot more choices in the sense that you have choices. Like, you can make a call and, and make something different happen uh, based on your your on, on new requirements as as things change so that's that's a good example actually I'm proud of myself for that one so that was establishing minimum requirements figure out what you actually need this one application to do and I had to do that uh, in a in a way did I actually I guess I did with Caden live for instance I, I I had certain things that I kind of expected Caden live to to take care of and it didn't and so I thought well you know what I could do though I could go from Caden live to a um, uncompressed video and then use FFmpeg to go from uncompressed to compressed. Not because KDN Live can't do uncompressed, it's just because it didn't do, I mean, uh, compressed. It's just because I don't like how it does compressed. I don't, it's not good enough for me. I, I want the option to to get in there and, and change settings, which you can do in KDN Live if you create your own profile, so and so. But I just, I'm more familiar with FFmpeg, so that works better for me. So in other words, again, defining the requirements of this piece of the puzzle and deciding which 25% of the application you actually want to use and which which other you know what other part of your project can be done in other applications is really really important unfortunately at this stage you don't always understand what those are but it it doesn't have to you don't have to build this right the first time this is a this is a journey that you're taking you can do this you can take guesses you can say well it seems to me like the part of uh, this music application that I like is is the is the the note entry, but I don't like the fact that I you know, I, don't, I don't like the way that I have to set up all the all the MIDI information. So what I'll do is I'll 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 enter notes here and then I'll export the MIDI file and then I'll play the MIDI file through Timidity or something like that. I'm I'm making this up and I, I can't imagine why anyone would do that, but it's you know it could happen. So there you go. So just figure out the minimum requirements for that component and then it's time to evaluate again. So evaluate based on your new expectations of it essentially. So you look at the application, you decide, okay, so am I comfortable doing this part of my project in this application am i comfortable with the output that i do get and then you look then you turn towards you know to find the next step the next link in this in this chain that you're building and and then you're you're back to to really the beginning you go back to the research phase okay so now you know that you have you you have a, an application that generates this kind of data file and that's as much as you're willing to commit to doing in that application. So you have a data file that looks like this. And so what do you need? What do you need to get from here to the next phase of your project? If it's music, yeah, maybe you've got data in some file and you want to render it, as it were. You want to you want to produce sound with some other application. Well, do you need to translate, translate that file into some other format? Is there something different that you're... Um, your your the Linux sampler wants to read from 
from a MIDI file, maybe it needs a newer version than what you put out, or, or maybe it needs an older version. Well, maybe you can revert back to the older version in your other application. You know, you're, you're figuring out that interstitial bit where you need this application to talk to talk to that application. It's not a direct connection, so you're just dumping data and you're ingesting data. It's something very common in lots and lots of different industries. You just have to think about it now. And in fact, quite frankly, quite possibly, the quote-unquote all-in-one application, or the all-in-one solution that you're using on proprietary software, was secretly doing this all along. And I think that was one of those things that really surprised me when I when I finally got away from proprietary software back, you know, years and years ago. I, I kind of, well, I actually, not when, like right before, I, I guess this was almost part of the reason that I left, was because I was realizing that it was hiding a bunch of stuff from me to make seem to make things seem easier. But when it went wrong, it wasted weeks of my time. And that's super frustrating to me. I, I don't like that amount of inefficiency. So there would be things where render file temporary render files that why do they even exist? I thought it was just magic. I thought it was just temporary rendering instantly on the fly. No, there's a temporary render file somewhere. Why is it becoming corrupt and lying to me? Why is it showing me something that doesn't accurately reflect the composite of all of these layers? Or um, wh why does this application not actually accept the output of that other application and I have to bring it into a converter uh, application myself because this part is breaking down or maybe it's it's not breaking down it's working perfectly but why does the quality suddenly go down on the next application oh that's because there's a secret process between the two where something's being compressed a whole bunch uh, and then loaded into this other thing well i don't want that compression i want to i want to i want to get in there and and modify that stuff so there's yeah there's lots of places where this happens it often is hidden from the user. It generally works 80% of the time, and for, I guess, what you might call power users, it fails, and that's frustrating. So you are doing your research on the next stage and the next link in this chain that you are building, and you're discovering what application can ingest what you've output from your previous application. And you evaluate it, and then you mentally compare it with what you're used to. Now, it doesn't. maybe there is no equivalent. It, you're still comparing it to product foo from proprietary OS, because product foo told you it was doing everything by itself all in one. Whether it is or not doesn't matter. The point being, what's the experience like? Is it better? Is there some aspect of it that's better? Is, is it equal? Is it at least as good as, you know, it, does it produce the same result? Whatever your requirements are, whatever your 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 whatever you're judging, you're basing your judgment off of. So research, evaluate, mentally compare, establish minimum uh, requirements, and then uh, evaluate again. Now, after all, many iterations of that, you presumably have a, you, you have a, an assembly line of, of components. You have bits and pieces of things that you're, that you're using. See how they fit together. Map it out if you have to. Draw it out as a little flow chart or a, or a, a literal map, like a, a, a location map. Like, like here's here's the city where I start, and then I go down this road, and I end up at this city. Now, the city where I started was Caden Liveville, and the uh, next city in the stop is FFmpegville. And from FFmpegville, I go over here to this other thing, you know, and you just you go through that. Or maybe you're in Caden Liveville, and you take a detour to Gimpland uh, in order to do. Um, should we call it Gimpland? I guess we could. Uh, Gimpland, so you could do a graphic uh, thing, a little splash screen or something, and then you import that back into Caden Live, and then you go back over to. Uh, and then you finish that, and then you go to FFmpeg and so on. 
Oh, and then you go, uh, before that, you also take a detour to Q-Tractor to do your mixing. So anyway, point point is that you're designing this, this pipeline, this assembly line, and you can map it out. You can map it out on paper. You can map it out on Inkscape or, some, or, or Dia or something like that. And eventually you have a roadmap, almost a, well, not a literal, a figurative roadmap for you to understand how all of these pieces are going to fit together. And it's really, really helpful. The next step, I guess, would be to test, right? I mean, we should test. So test to make sure that your theory is is correct, that you can, that this assembly line actually functions, that you can output from here, ingest here, output this ingest that and then output that and there's your final product that's what you were that's what you came to produce right so you test that and once let's assume that it works uh because you've done your research really well and you're a you're a fast learner once you've tested it then you want to ensure that this assembly line is maybe i don't want to say automated but that it is repeatable that it is um almost scripted in a sense and that could mean different things depending on your tolerance and depending on your capabilities but the danger i think is that you you create a solution for yourself as a solution as we say in the consulting the it consultant world you create a solution for yourself and you find it so cumbersome to remember and to implement that you basically may as well never have found it and there's a danger there because you know you're, you're you're taking it from you you you're not taking it from theory to to practice you're just you're coming up with like this this concept of yeah this could work this this technically works on paper it works i've tested it it works but are you going to sit down and do the thing and and if not then that solution is worthless throw it out and start with something and come up with something simpler whether you have to noodle around in the software some more to get more familiar with it and more comfortable with it so that you can compress all those different steps into one and and actually make that an all-in-one application and just kind of settle for that as your all-in-one application or whether you just learn the process better or whether you script the process maybe you script the conversion process maybe you don't know ffmpeg that well figure out the command that you need to convert that one file to the other and then script that make it a, an alias make it a command in your uh in your bin folder who cares just make it so that this is not a blocker for you when you sit down to be creative because nothing kills the creative mood better than troubleshooting frustrating technical problems and and again this could take lots of different forms and you want to make sure that you have everything truly scripted like i mean it doesn't have to be literally bash scripted or python scripted but it needs to be written down somewhere so that you can if you if you are you're sitting at your music program and you're you're pressing the button and the synth just isn't making any sound look at your script what does it say oh it says to make sure that your speaker is on okay okay well it was on okay uh now it says to check pulse audio okay so we go up to pulse and ah there we go the input isn't set to the line in it's set to hdmi in or something silly like that or or usb in or whatever so yeah you you need these this scripted you need it written down you need the steps down so that you can read them and you think well i don't need that on my other platform well you're right you don't because you you've got 20 years of history of using or or five good years of history of using that platform and so you don't need to script it because you've developed that script internally over five ten whatever years 
and you need to get to that point on Linux. But the first step to getting there is to is to reinforce it. So that's that's scripting the process. And I, I guess really the 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 last step, well maybe two last steps. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one in there for free, and that is document. That's not everyone's workflow about workflows, but I like to document things, which, I mean, I think scripting out the thing is is documenting the thing, so maybe those are t the same things, but I, I still, I think documentation is handy, not only for yourself, but for other people who follow you. So if you, if you sort of record your workflow and and talk about how you're doing things, or write it down somewhere, then then you just kind of have that reinforcement, that set of stuff. You know, this is th 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 this is how I do this, and, and you can refer to that any old time. And if someone else asks you, how are you doing that? You've got that documented now. And, and if for nothing else, documenting the process is good to ensure that when you upgrade your computer, or you, yeah, like when you get a new computer and you're reinstalling everything from scratch, you know what to reinstall. That's an important thing. You 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 don't think about it all the time, but that's important. Well, certainly on Slackware, it's important. But it's I think it's important on anything because you you especially in multimedia at least there are a lot of times that you're installing little support libraries or little support apps that you don't really think about. You don't use them directly. They're just things that get installed. Synths come immediately to mind. Brushes for your paint applications, fonts, that sort of thing. It's it's important. You need to archive and or document that stuff. So let's. I'm going to change. I'm going to say document and archive. And then eight finally is practice, practice, practice. It makes perfect. So stop talking about it. Figure now. You now that you figured it out, stop and go do it. Do do it a lot of times and, and get good at it. Make it feel natural. And trust me, after enough repetition, you will not only hit the the, the groove, the stride, your stride in in this. You will you will figure it out. You will feel comfortable with it. But you'll actually start to excel at it, and that's the exciting time. It's a little bit of a delayed payoff, unfortunately. I mean, if you're really really excited about, oh my gosh, I am making simple compositions on open source software, and I didn't you know this is all open source it belongs to me it's it's permanent it's something that i've created that's great but i think a lot of people the open source is a, a great to have a nice to have maybe it's even a must to have but it, it doesn't maybe it doesn't i mean when you're trying to get something done that that's not the main focus so you have to wait till you've practiced and then you start making stuff on this open source operating environment that you've built up for yourself You've customized it through hours of evaluation and hours of practice and time and attention spent to every little detail so that everything works exactly as you want it to work. And then at some point you're going to be making your your, your thing, your art or your, your product of whatever variety it is, and you're going to sort of pause and you're going to look down at your your hands on the keyboard and the mouse and you're going to sit, you're going to think oh my gosh like I'm really good at this I'm doing this and it's natural and I wouldn't want to trade it for the world and that's what you're shooting for that's it coffee break <laughs> I should have probably warned you up front, I cheated and I've had coffee all along.
Hopefully you have too. Non-technical users in Linux and open source. This is actually one of those questions I've pondered for a long time, a lot longer than probably necessary, but it's just been in the back of my mind, and that is, why do we need to bring in people to, to Linux? Why do we need to like feel like we should recruit people to Linux? And, and even when someone would post on some internet place about, for instance, diversity in open source, or diversity in Linux, or making sure that, that the, the open source space or Linux isn't privileged or whatever, I, I would always kind of, I would stop and I would think, okay, that's great, but why? What What is the rationale? What's the actual reason? Like, what if Linux is just a set of, let's just be very reductionist here, a set of tin developers who happen to know how to develop this thing? Uh, and when I say Linux, sorry, I mean what if the entire open source operating system that I'm using right now, what if that's 10 people who, who happen to know, who specialize in their areas, and that's what they do? Why do we need more users? Well, of course, obviously, we need more users because people go away. I mean, you do need, you need backups of, of your meatware. So if, if someone decides that they're finished developing this area that they were the expert in, and they just wander off, then you don't have that domain covered in your operating system anymore. That's bad. So that's the very, very pragmatic kind of, look, we need more people to sustain the technology. But that those are technical users, right? Well, why do we need to recruit non-technical users? And you can tack on any other addendum to that that you want, like, why do they need to be quote-unquote diverse? Why do we need men and women? Why do we need men and women not just in North America? And there are lots of great reasons. You can come up with a dozen off the top of your head. And, and actually, there are some really good studies on that topic, how if you have a group who are from the same background and have the same, maybe the same kind of training, when presented with a problem, a lot of their solutions are going to be basically the same because they've all been taught how to solve problems essentially the same way. Not not word for word or anything like that, but there are certain principles, maybe their experiences at different jobs and so on, or different schools, whatever, have sort of formed their worldview or their expectations of how the world works. And when presented with a problem, they all basically draw from the same toolkit in order to fix it. And I feel like we've all experienced this, or we've seen it in movies, you know, where a group of people are sitting around a table pondering and puzzling and, and quibbling and debating over this problem that they have, and then the the lowly cleaning person wanders in to, to empty the, the waste bins, comments out of the side of their mouth, oh, you should just reverse the polarity. Oh my gosh, that's it. That's all we have to do. It's so simple and so outside of the box that they've been living in for the past five years or ten years or whatever that they just never thought of it. That's a, a, good, a good reason, a great reason to recruit people from unexpected places into a group. And, and that's not what I have to... That's, that's someone else's idea. That was someone, that was a talk that I heard somewhere about diversity and open source. Now really quick, so that I'm not guilty of the thing that I'm often complaining about myself, I'm going to insert a little caveat here and, and clarify that I have no idea or presumption that you or I, dear listener, are not recruiting people because we don't want more people in Linux and open source. And I'm, I am one of the many people who are sitting at their desk very often hearing about how we need to be more diverse in open source, wondering, okay, well, where are the applicants? Because I certainly, I certainly have been involved in enough, at this point, in enough projects to know that I can't attract people to a project that I'm involved with to save my life. So it is hardly some kind of bias happening on my part 
that prevents people from contributing to my project. It's just that no one is knocking on my door to contribute to any project that I've ever done. Now, that's not entirely true. I've gotten a couple of patches here and there on different projects, and I don't know who they are or where they came from or how they found me because they don't disclose that sort of information to me. They simply send me some code, I apply it, and that's that. So in terms of you know, sort of scolding myself or you or anyone for maybe not accepting people into open source is not, that's not the, that's not what I'm saying here at all. I'm simply observing that it, yes, I'm acknowledging that it is an important thing to have diversity in open source. Now, the other side of all of this, though, is when you hear about people trying to recruit people into open source, is that a worthwhile activity? Is that something, you know, all these outreach programs and all these other things, is it something that's important, or should we just sit and wait for people to find us? But what I was actually thinking of, and maybe it's related, but what I was thinking of and, and kind of realizing is that I think, at least for myself, the intent of open source, and, and this isn't the intent for everyone involved in open source. Open source happens to be a lot of different people with lots of different ideas. Hey, that's diversity. My understanding is that open source, or at least the Linux operating system that many of us run, we are trying to build a self contained, self-standing, independent entity. We don't want there to be dependencies outside of our control. I think that's a big appeal for open source, for, for people involved in open source. That's one of the main things, is that, is that if there's a component somewhere that they don't control, then that's a problem to be solved. Now, again, open source is a big space, and there are people who happily develop and use open source from Windows and are perfectly fine with it and certainly the 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 very rabid critique uh, critic of open source might point at even linux user a diehard linux user and say well you're not really all about open source because you run your operating system on chips on firmware that you cannot replicate you cannot inspect you cannot introspect you cannot change whatever so there's levels right but the 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 general idea is that we're trying to build something that's kind of a structure on its own. It's an independent entity. So in order to do that, you need a lot of different that, – that, that, to, to do this effectively, you have a lot of different positions to fill, right? There's, there's the obvious ones, which I feel like because open source pretty much started there, I feel like those get a lot of attention, and those are the developers. Those are the people writing the software that other people are using. They're the ones hacking on code, and that's kind of what it's all about. But even even being a, the modest software developer that I am, I recognized quite early when I was writing some software for my, uh, for my partner that you need, you know, as a developer, it helps to have what's called a project manager, right? Someone on the outside of the code, looking at the bigger picture. I mean, even if you're the only programmer of the code, you need someone else outside of that looking at the complete picture, at the finished product, what you're shooting for. Because otherwise, you'll just keep coding and coding and coding without really necessarily one direction. And you'll you'll hit some place where you say, well, I could provide five different methods for a person to do this. I guess I'll just throw them all in there because that's easier than making a choice about what the user would reasonably expect. So you, that project manager is a, is a really useful person to have. And that project manager moves up a couple of notches or away from that center coding sphere if you have other if you have more dedicated people like app, you know UI designers and uh, usability testers and QA uh, engineers and 
and documentation people and then above all of that you've got that project manager well that's even better so then you've got you've got other people outside of that maybe or 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 maybe you've got people attached to some of those inner spheres like you've got the ui designer but then or the yeah the ui um expert but then the usability expert but then you've got the 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 person making all of that art for for the the interface that has now been mocked up by the usability person and you've got all the documentation support stuff that you need for your documenter to work correctly and you've got your infrastructure guys who need to make um the the place where all this is going to live so every every little project amazingly becomes some kind of incorporation or or i guess enterprise is a, a better term for it. it even the small ones they become they become things that that need to be managed by t- people who who maybe aren't technical at all now the interesting thing about open source is that it is diverse and uh flexible enough that if you've started down the path of of a software project or an open source project of any kind, really, then you you'll probably be able to find, if you try hard enough, other people to join in. And since these tasks may not be very technically, you know, you you need the support kind of non technical stuff. Maybe you'll be able to find people to join in even easier because now you you know you've you've thrown those gates wider. You you don't need specialized things just encoding you need specialized things in other areas right so here's the thing if you want to develop your independent enterprise on independent software then you need people in many different areas using open source and if it's specific to linux then you need people using linux so in other words what i'm trying to say is that you can find maybe five developers to develop something for linux five who am i kidding one you can find one one developer that this is me marketing now so it's it's yeah i i can find myself right and then i need someone to to act as maybe the 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 ui designer and the icon developer well i could probably if i cast a wide enough net i can find those positions but are they going to be familiar with linux are they going to be familiar with open source i mean they may they may have passing familiarity with those things but are they going to be users of those things that's a different question entirely so then you need maybe your project manager and again sort of the farther out i feel you get i think i i kind of feel like it's the, the harder it gets to find those people who kind of fit the requirements that you have for your team these are these are not hard requirements oftentimes but in an ideal world if you say okay we're going to we're going to be running a a linux shop here and in that linux shop we're going to be linux users and we're going to be building this stuff with the tool you know we're going to be building our tools with the with the target that we mean to use it on that's that's what we're going to be using to build the tool so in other words you your your whole stack right you're eating all the dog food not just your own dog food you're eating all of the dog food in in the, the in the region it's really difficult to do that if you don't have those positions that you need within your your domain so in other words if you want to develop on linux for linux and when i say develop i mean it very broadly you want your team to be developing on linux for linux you need to make sure that you've got all those positions well stocked you need choices you need 
people out there who are application or usability experts or application UI designers or whatever, icon designers. You need you need project managers. You need the documentation people. You need all of those people and, and more than just one of them in the world who know Linux, who are comfortable on Linux, who grew up on Linux, who who love Linux, who love open source, who don't want to... Who aren't, who aren't, who, who aren't, the, the, the moral quandary of, oh my gosh, we need a chat server right now. We can't afford to mess around with a bunch of different ones. We just need one that exists. We need it right now. Let's do this. In a group where you've got one person who develops and uses Linux and five people who are on the team that is developing something for Linux, don't use Linux and don't really use all that much open source, then it becomes a question. Well, should we use an open source chat uh, server, or should we just use whatever closed source one that that everyone's heard of lately and can very quickly create an instance on someone else's server? You're done. Shadow IT, closed source. With an open source friendly group of people, I don't feel like that's going to happen. And I realize that in a way this sounds like I'm going exactly against what I just said about, oh, we need to support diversity and other ways of thinking and all that other stuff. But... If diversity requires accepting closed-source solutions and questioning whether open-source solutions are good enough for our purposes or are ubiquitous enough for us to look cool using or whatever the problem might be, then then that's I, I don't I don't feel like that's positive diversity within open source, right? I mean that that's a foundation of closed source that happens to be building some open source. I'm not interested in that personally. Other people are. I'm not. And of course it goes, the chatbot is just a, a simple example. I mean, it, it goes a lot deeper and, and into more important things, arguably, than that. Such as, well, how are we going to manage our our bug ticketing? Is it going to be an open source solution, or are we going to go closed source proprietary uh, solution? Because, again, that's kind of what everyone else has been using at their jobs, or it's what everyone else is, is reading about online, but it doesn't do anything to, to help build up the open source infrastructure because that's there's we're not using open source now we're not testing open source we're not improving we're not filing bugs we're not we're not stress testing these things so we're we're essentially hurting open source by by not by not participating in open source and that's that's not good that's not a good thing so i feel like we do need to recruit people from outside our areas of expertise whatever that expertise may be into open source because yeah we can we're all we we can all probably force ourselves to do any given job i mean really we can we might not enjoy it it might not come naturally it might not be something that we wake up and default to but we could in a pinch we can make ourselves fill fill a need if we care enough about the project but if we recruit people who love that sort of thing and are good at that sort of thing and do that thing on open source then the structure is a lot stronger and now you're using open source to build open source your people, your team are using open source. There's a lot of contribution happening. There's a lot of stress testing and evaluation. Bug, bug reports are flying out the door. That's a positive environment for open source development. And that's why we need more non-technical users. We need the application de designers, the UI designers. We need the icon designers. We need the documenters, the project managers. All those people that maybe even maybe, maybe there aren't sufficient open source tools yet for them to do their job like they did on their old platform. But we need to know that. That's part of the process. We want to know about those deficiencies and we want to develop 
solutions and workflows to make those things happen. And you can't do that if we just ignore it. If we just keep saying, well, we don't really need those people. We'll just fill in the gaps ourselves. Or we need those people, but we can't find any open source people. So we'll just, we'll, we'll get people to come in and, and do the work on closed source and, we'll, and that'll be fine. That's a problem. We want to encourage open source as we develop open source. We want to use open source while we're building open source. Remember that. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Clatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Og Cast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Clatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Clatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. and desktop presentations are nice. Any of us is still fine. Computer games, one of the most wonderful benefits of the personal computer era.